All right. We are good to go. It's good to be with you guys. Excited uh, to, to jump into God's Word tonight. I don't know if Alex said. I wasn't paying attention. My name is Drew. Uh, if we haven't got to meet, I do hope to get to meet you. And what Alex said is true. It was not a, it was not a lie. We do have cookies for you afterwards. We're, we'll tell you more about that later if you're new. Uh, tonight, we're going to be in Mark 8. If you want to start heading there, you can. Um, yeah, that's where we'll be tonight, right there, kind of towards the end of Mark 8. <clears throat> it is strange to me how one interaction can change your entire perspective on something. How one small little conversation, one even question even, can just change your entire paradigm, the entire way that you have viewed something. It is uh, the fall semester of my senior year of high school. And my parents have just moved us outside of town. I grew up in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And we just moved to this little house outside of town in an area called Gooseneck Bend. Uh, Gooseneck Bend sits outside the town, not by very much, but it's a heavily wooded area, one of those places you kind of drive through and you don't see anybody's houses because they're all on long driveways back into the woods. And we were just there temporarily kind of renting until we got our house uh, built a little while after that. But that fall, I'm staying there at Gooseneck Bend and I discover, or really rediscover, I had heard of this, but I rediscover this place that sat just about three-quarter of a mile from our house, which was called Hopewell Park. And I loved Hopewell Park. Now, you need to know, as I say park to you, you, you're envisioning something that this is not. You're seeing in your head right now like park benches on a little walking trail and maybe a big open space in the middle with a playground. That is not what Hopewell Park was, at least not at the time that I was there. I don't know what it ever used to be exactly, but by the time I first discovered it, it was old and overgrown and run down. I think that it was some kind of like campground area because it was basically just one giant loop out into the woods. It just made this big loop and all the way around the loop there are these little spots where you could stop off and park your car. I assume campsites of some kind. And, and so that was all it was, but there was this one section of the loop that went right up to a little river that ran by it. And, uh, and there was even like a little ramp that you could back your car up and drop like I assume a small boat down there into the river. And I loved Hopewell Park. I loved going there, not because it was beautiful, it was overgrown and stuff, but because it was peaceful, because nobody else ever went there, and it was serene and calm, and, and I loved to go there and, and read or to, to pray or to listen to music or whatever that was, and, and I had heard some stories, like there were rumors that uh, some kind of shady stuff went down at Hopewell Park sometimes, but I had never personally witnessed anything, and I never went there after dark or anything like that. So as far as I was concerned, this was like my own little personal paradise where I could go by myself and just hang out. And all of that changed with one little conversation. I'm sitting out there one day, and for reasons I don't remember, I'm in my dad's full-size van, okay? Not minivan, like full-size van. Think like the kind that when it pulls up to the park, all the parents kind of pull their kids a little bit closer, right? <laughs> so like I'm, I'm, I'm driving that, okay? And I'm out there and I'm sitting in the van. I got all the windows down and I've got my, uh, I'm reading, I think is what I'm doing. I'm just reading a book, hanging out. And all of a sudden, this car pulls up next to me. Uh, and I look over and it's a police car. And the officer gets out and he walks up to the window. Remember my windows are rolled down, walks up and he just says, good afternoon, sir, how you doing? And I'm like, I'm 
fine officer, and uh, he says, uh, can I ask you what you're doing out here? And I told him, I'm, re I'm just out here reading, and, and he gave me this look like, yeah, right, a teenager in a uh, stoner van is sitting out by the river <laughs> just reading, right? Um, and he goes, okay, uh, could I, uh, you mind if I ask you to step out of the car? And I'm like, okay, so I step out of the car, and he says, would it be all right with you if I search your vehicle? And I said, yeah, that's, that's fine. I still don't really know what's going on very well, but as he begins to search, he's opening up doors and he's looking down underneath things. And as he's doing that, he begins asking me a series of questions. And he asked me this question, uh, sir, are there any drugs in this vehicle? And I say, no, sir, but I'm thinking, okay, I see. I see where this is going. I get it. I've heard, the, I've heard some of the stories. I've heard some of the rumors. I'm sure he kind of expects if a dude is out here in a van, there's probably something like that going on, right? That makes sense. And then he asks me, uh, are there any firearms in this van? Any weapons of any kind in this van? And I thought, oh, shoot. Hopewell's a little bit more sketchy than I thought. There's some more intense stuff going on out here than I thought that they come out here looking for weapons, right? And, and then he asks me this question. Do you have any hand grenades in this van? <laughs> and I said to him, wait, wait hand that's a thing? You, you gotta ask people out here if they have hand grenades? Uh, that's, that's not actually what I said. What I said was, no, sir. But in my mind, in my mind, I remember thinking, what kind of ridiculous crap goes on out at Hopewell that if the cops see you out here, they just assume that guy's probably got hand grenades, right? Like, and, and like, my whole, like, everything, my mind is just spinning in this moment. And, and he begins, he continues to, I don't know if he was asking me questions or saying stuff. The truth is, I wasn't even paying attention at that point. Uh, I was too busy scanning the area waiting for some dude to hop out of the bushes with a grenade launcher or something of some kind. Right? As he's asking me these questions. And then he just kind of sits there and he says a couple things. He's like, all right, well, have a good day. And then he hops in his car and he just drives off and leaves me alone in the middle of a war zone outside in the scope. And, and so I was like, heck no, this is not happening. I jumped in the van, I hopped in so fast, I was like tailing him. He probably thought I was trying to pull him over. I was going so fast out of that place. And all in this one little interaction, all actually with this one little question, my entire perspective on that place changed from this beautiful, serene kind of paradise for me to this crazy, scary place that I never want to go to again. It's crazy how just one little interaction can do that. That's the kind of interaction that takes place in our text today. It's an interaction that is designed, when Jesus first had it with his disciples, it was designed to shift Peter's whole perspective. It was written by Mark to shift your entire perspective on who Jesus is. Mark is, if, if you're kind of new to some of these things, Mark is one of four books that focus on the life of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. And the whole point of these books is to describe who Jesus is, his identity, and his actions, what he has done. And what happens in Mark chapter 8 is Mark has moved us along from activity to activity actually really quick. Most people will tell you Mark is a very fast-paced Gospel. And now we get to Mark 8, and he's going to slow the pace down a lot. 
because he doesn't want you to miss what's about to go on. Jesus is actually bringing his disciples up to the top of where Israel kind of is, up to this region called Caesarea Philippi. This is at the end. And then from here on out, he's going to slowly make the journey down to Jerusalem, which is where the pivotal moment in Jesus' story takes place. The culmination, everything is building towards this moment. But as he goes down, he's going to begin teaching his disciples a number of things. So if you will, Mark chapter 8, verse 27 Here's what we read. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Now, Mark has written his whole book, or at least these first eight chapters, to answer that question for you. He has been, by all the stories, if you were to pick up Mark and read it from the beginning, you would see that everything he has written has been driving us towards this question and the answer that is about to come with it. That's been the whole point of this. Uh, Many people will tell you, actually, scholars say Mark is divided into two halves. Um, You have Mark 1 through 8, and you have Mark 9 through 16, and the text we're reading right now is the hinge text for the entire gospel. It all folds on this little section that we're about to read right here. And here's what, how the conversation continues in verse 28. They answered him. So he asked, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Now, everybody knows about Jesus. He's the talk of the region. He's the talk in many ways of the nation, this man who's doing all these incredible things and teaching all these incredible ways and this crowd is gathering up around him and everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion about who this man might be or what he might be. Some think he might be John the Baptist who was the forerunner for Jesus. He's the one who came and paved the way. A short time ago, he was beheaded by the wicked King Herod and there's some people thinking because Jesus is doing all these powerful things, maybe something kind of magical is going on. Maybe John the Baptist is back or something. Uh, Some people think it's Elijah because there were these prophecies that said the great prophet Elijah from the Old Testament that he would return one day before the great day of the Lord. And so people People are thinking it's that. Some people just say he's another one of the prophets. But Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks the real question. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now this question is not just for the disciples. Mark has written this because he wants his readers, he wants you to answer this fundamental question. The most important question you will ever answer in your life is not should I change my major. As much as it might feel like that sometimes. The most important question you will ever ask is not, who should I marry? The most important question you will ever ask is not, what will my career be or where will I live? The most important question is this, who do you say that Jesus is? Because how you answer that question will shape everything else about you. Peter is ready. And so he steps to the front of the class and gives his answer in the back half of 29. Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he, Jesus, strictly warned them to tell no one about this. Now, Jesus' response there seems a little bit weird. We'll get to that in just a minute. But Peter's answer is the key here. This is what Mark has been driving us toward all this time. The first half of the book, actually, if you were to sum these two halves of Mark up, the first chapters, one through eight, can be summed up just in this simple statement. Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? Jesus is the Messiah. Your, your text, your 
translation might say Christ. Jesus is the Christ. That's just the Greek word Christos, which means Messiah, the anointed one, the, the chosen one, the one we've all been waiting for. And every story that Mark has told so far, talking about his miracles and talking about his teaching and talking about the things that he's able to do, the fact that he's forgiving people's sins, which only God is supposed to be able to do that, all of that has been driving to give his readers this truth, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one you've been waiting for. But then the story right here at the hinge has a twist because Jesus goes on after this in verse 31. Then he, Jesus, began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man, that's him, for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, to be killed and rise up after three days. He spoke openly about this, that is, clearly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So here's the twist. The first half of Mark is summed up in this phrase, Jesus is the Messiah. The second half of Mark is summed up in this phrase, the Messiah must suffer. Not the Messiah will suffer, the Messiah must. You notice Jesus says here, he told him it was necessary for him to suffer. He's not just telling them the future. He's telling them what his agenda is. He's telling them what God's agenda is for him. Now, many of you, when I tell you that's the twist in the story, that the Messiah must suffer, many of you go, hey, yeah, we knew that. Like we've heard about this all our life, we kind of knew that that's what Jesus came to do, that's what he's on his way to Jerusalem to do, to, to suffer and die. But you need to understand how big of a shock this would have been to Mark's first readers and to the disciples because the Messiah in their world and in their understanding is not supposed to be rejected. The Messiah is not supposed to die. Their understanding of the Messiah is that he would be this royal military commander who was going to come in and, and raise up an army and he was going to confront and then destroy all their pagan oppressors, that is, the armies of Rome. And he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to set up a, a throne there and he was going to reign in victory and return Israel to their glory. The Messiah was by definition a winner, which means if you're going to die, you can't be the Messiah. And so when Jesus says these words, they, they would have been taken back. This, by the way, is why Jesus tells them, keep it a secret. Because when they say Messiah, they've got a completely different picture in their head than what Jesus is talking about. And if they run off and go tell the crowds, the crowds will have a completely different picture in their head than what he's talking about. The disciples expect for Jesus to rise to power, but not just him. Oh, no, 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 no. When he goes to power, guess who goes with him? They do. Peter does. Peter, his right-hand man, who's been with him from the very beginning. And when Jesus sits on top, Peter knows he's going to be right there with him. The truth of the matter is, Peter's got reasons to believe that Jesus is going to reign victorious. He's been told that ever since he was a kid, but he's also got reasons to want that to happen. He's got his own agenda for Jesus and he's got his own reasons, his own agenda for how that's going to benefit him. And if you don't think that's true, just look one chapter later. Chapter 9, 33, and Peter and the rest of the disciples all get into a big fight over who's going to be greatest in this new kingdom that Jesus is going to set up in Jerusalem. No, no, they've got their own plans for Jesus and their own agenda for him. And so Peter takes Jesus aside in this moment and goes, okay, uh, Jesus, this is kind of awkward. 
but that, that's not really how this story goes, okay? If you're the Messiah, that's not really the brand that we're going for right here, Jesus, this whole rejection and dying thing. So let me just kind of set you straight. We'll get you back on the right path. Now, you may guess this, but this is not going to go well for Peter, okay? This is what Jesus says in verse 33. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. How quickly Peter goes from the front of the class to the back. In a matter of seconds, he's got the answer everybody wants. And the very next minute, Jesus is calling him Satan. It doesn't get a lot worse than that. Uh, Peter, by the way, has an incredible, like if you didn't know, he would have an incredible two truths and a lie, right? He could come up and be like, I'm from Jerusalem. I walked on water. The son of God once personally called me Satan, right? And, and none of us would guess which one was, which one was the lie, right? Like that's, he's got some crazy stuff to go there. But Jesus makes it very clear that he is against what Peter is talking about. And that last sentence sums up the problem. Get behind me, Satan, he says, because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. Peter has set his agendas up against God's agenda for Jesus. And by doing that, he has therefore aligned himself with the enemy, with Satan. He knows Jesus. He's been with him two and a half years by now. He knows Jesus. He knows that Jesus is the promised one. He knows that he is the Messiah, and yet he still does not know him. Which leads me to believe that this problem is not unique to Peter and the disciples. The truth is that this is a very natural tendency in people, in us, to want Jesus, but to want him on my own terms. Because I've already got kind of a plan for my life. I've got an agenda for how my life is supposed to go. And of course, Jesus will be a great part of that as long as he doesn't get in the way of those things. As long as he kind of serves that agenda with me. And there are a lot of people who want Jesus in their life because they know Jesus will make me a better version of me. Jesus will help me be more moral or more spiritual or Jesus will help me have greater peace of mind so that my anxiety doesn't run me all the time. Jesus will bless me and help me get into the schools that I want to get into and help me pass the tests and get the jobs that I want. Jesus will give me a community around me and the goal is, yes, this is great as long as he does not get in the way of my control. As long as I still get to steer the ship, as long as he doesn't stop me from the things that I most want in life, I'd love to have him along for the ride, but that's not how it works with Jesus. Jesus knows that it's not just Peter thinking these things, and so he turns in this moment, calls the crowd. So the disciples are with him. There's a crowd following a little ways behind him, and he calls everybody up front. Come here. We've got to have a talk. And this is what he says to them. In verse 34, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? And what can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
And you got to at least give this to Jesus. He does not beat around the bush. Jesus can never be accused of a bait and switch. He's never going to make you sound like following him is one thing and then pull you in another direction when you get there. No, he's always straight and to the point that his agenda is not Peter's agenda, is not disciples' agenda, is not the crowd's agenda, is not our agenda. His agenda is to bring glory to the Father through the denial and the sacrifice and the death of himself. And if that is the path that Jesus is taking then guess what path all his followers are supposed to be taking as well? Jesus says, you want to come after me? I know you think you're on your way to glory. I know you think you're on your way to a palace. I know you think you're on your way to a victory. You want to come after me? It's not going to be like that. That's not how it goes for me. That's not how it goes for you either. Be ready to deny yourself. Be ready to take up your cross daily to follow me. Here's the question. What does that mean? What does it mean to deny yourself and take up your cross? And maybe, maybe the bigger question, why, why should anybody do that? Why should anybody be ready to deny themselves to take the same kind of rejected path that Jesus takes? That's what we're going to talk about after the break. We'll take a couple minutes. You can stand, stretch your legs if you need to use the restroom, and then we'll get back to it here in just a few. Let's jump back to it. The text that we just read may be one of the most countercultural statements a person could ever make. The, the, the statement that Jesus makes, the things that he says in this, have to be some of the most countercultural ideas ever presented in a world where self sits at the center of everything, where yourself is everything, where you are told to live for yourself, where you are told uh, to do what brings happiness to yourself, where you're told to trust yourself, where you're told to find yourself, where you're told to look to yourself to find truth, where you're told to be yourself, Jesus stands up and calls you to deny yourself. And that's backwards from everything else that you are told all the way around you. But let's be honest, that's, that's always been unpopular. That's not just a today thing. That's not just an American thing. It was unpopular when Jesus stood up and said it because the message that he's sharing there in Mark 8 is not just countercultural, it's counterintuitive. It's counternatural, right? Because the very thing inside of me, I am designed to protect myself, to, to serve myself, to try and help myself move forward. This idea of denying myself is a hard one. And yet... A lot of the people that Jesus talked to in this crowd did it, including Peter. Not yet. He's still got a while before he fully gets it. But, but, G, but, but Peter is going to be so radically changed by this conversation and the things that are going to take place in the next six months that he will deny himself and he will not just figuratively, literally take up his cross and end up dying just like Jesus does. Why? Why? What compelled people like Peter and the disciples? What compelled them to do this? Why should you and I do this? First, let me just clarify what we mean when we talk about denying yourself. There's some people who fear that when Jesus is calling you to deny yourself, he means like, um, like basically that he wants to rid you of your personality. 
to kind of take away many of the things that make you uniquely you. That's not true. Though he does intend to strip away, to cut away those parts of your personality that are marred by sin, where my personality leads itself towards laziness, or where my personality leads itself towards harshness or towards manipulating people, Jesus wants to take that away, but he is not trying to erase who you are. He's not trying to do away with those things so that he can make us all this kind of uniform, one-size-fits-all Christian. No, no, no. He made you the way you are. He wants you the way you are. He made you who you are on purpose. And so he's not trying to strip all the way. There's some people who think that denying myself means basically just denying what I want. Saying no to myself, being very self-disciplined, and, and maybe even kind of in extreme versions like doing the opposite of, of what I want. If I'm going to deny myself, that means uh, I want to be a doctor. Sorry, can't be a doctor now. I have to deny myself. You want to live in Oklahoma? Sorry, you got to move to Africa now because you said you wanted to be in Oklahoma. and We're denying ourselves, right? There's some people who are afraid that what this means is Jesus is going to make me do the opposite of everything that I want. That's not true either. It's actually less scary than that and at the same time way more scary. Because what Jesus is calling you for is not just to give him your desires. He's calling you to give your very self to him. So you can actually deny yourself a lot of things and still be living totally for yourself. People do it all the time. They deny themselves certain things so that they can build up wealth. They deny themselves certain things so they can be healthy. They deny themselves certain things so that they can be great. There are all kinds of things like that. But Jesus is calling for something different. It means, when he says deny yourself, it means this, that I get off the throne of my heart and I let Jesus sit there. That Jesus has the ultimate say in my life. And, and I can still move towards goals. You want to be a doctor? Great. Prepare yourself to be a doctor. You want to live in Oklahoma? Great. Make plans to live in Oklahoma. But the, what that means, though, is that I hold all of those things with open hands. But I hold them all with open hands towards Jesus so that he has the freedom to do with those things what, what he wants to do. It means that I will conform my life to his word, to doing what he calls me to, even when it's hard. Even when that goes against what I want. So here is the question that I mentioned. Why should I do that? Why, why should I live a life like that when it seems so much easier to just kind of live for myself, when it's so difficult and scary? Why should you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? I want to give you three reasons from this text. Three reasons that I think we see in this very text. The first one is this. It's the only way to follow Jesus. There's no other way to do it. What if... Jesus isn't just being demanding here. What if he's just being honest? Well, listen, I'm okay if Jesus is being demanding. I think he has the right to. But I think that Jesus is perhaps just being honest. What if he's just describing a very real truth that there are some things that just cannot be done halfway? What if following Jesus is like a trust fall? You guys know the trust fall, right? I stand up here on the stage, a couple of you guys get behind me, I turn my back, and the whole idea is that I gotta trust you enough to fall back and do those. You ever seen somebody do that like hesitantly or halfway? Doesn't go well, right? Like if I start to fall back and I ball myself up at the last second, I'm going to the ground. If you're gonna do the trust fall, you've gotta commit. It's the only way to do it. And the same goes for following Jesus. There is no version of following Jesus 
where I say I trust him, but I don't actually lay my life into his hands. There is no version of following Jesus where I say I believe in him and then I kind of halfway do it and I kind of halfway give him control, but I still ultimately kind of come and squeeze myself onto the throne every time things get a little bit uncomfortable for me or every time things get a little bit inconvenient that I try to get there and take control back. No, the truth is there is only one person who can sit on the throne of my heart There's only one person who can sit on the throne of your heart. And can I just tell you, between the two options, Jesus is the better one. How do I know this? Uh, Because of the second reason why you should deny yourself and follow Jesus. The uh, The reason is this. He did that for you first. Don't get so caught up in verse 34 where Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Don't get so caught up in that that you forget verse 31 where Jesus says these words, it is necessary for me to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes to be killed and rise up after three days. He is not asking you to do anything that he has not first done for you. He's not asking you to walk any road that he was not willing to walk first. That's the very reason that he came here. That's the very reason he's going to start the long journey from the top of Israel down to Jerusalem is because I was so consumed with myself and I so wanted to live for myself that I ended up enslaved by these desires to serve myself, consumed by these. You know that when we try to call all the shots for ourselves that it does not go well. You've been there. And Jesus knows that. And so Jesus makes the long road down to Jerusalem so that he could be rejected for me, so that he could go up on the cross for me. He took up his cross for me so that I could be made right again, so that I could be redeemed. What Jesus is saying is not, you've got to give up everything, and if you do that, maybe you can earn my love. No, don't get it backwards. Jesus loved you well before you ever even knew to do this. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus does this because he loves us. And that, can I just tell you, is a king worth trusting. That is a king worth following. That is a king worth giving your whole life to. And if he's willing to do that for you, you can trust him with your life. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, And Jesus died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Third reason. We're keeping it short tonight. Third reason why you should be ready to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, is because it's worth it. Quite simply, it is absolutely worth it. You know this that the Jesus who says, hand over your life in Mark 8 is the exact same Jesus who in John 10, 10 says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, that you might have life and have it in abundance. And both of those statements are true. When Jesus says, hand me your life, it's no less true than when he says, I've come to give you the best kind of life. Both of those things actually come together in Jesus. He has made this possible. And this is a valuable truth, actually. Look at what he says, the great secret that is revealed in verses 35 through 38. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. 
For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. This is the great secret that those who spend their lives fighting to control their life ultimately lose it. And that those who are willing to give their life over to Jesus get it back. And not just that, they get true life. They get real life. They get eternal life. A life lived in the presence of a father who loves you and made you for himself. That is the great secret of following Jesus. One of my favorite toys at the Moss household are these blocks here. I don't know if you've ever seen these. These are called, I don't know what they're called. We always call them magna blocks or magna blocks, something like that. These are really cool. And the reason why is because they can like, there's magnets all around the edges so they can just kind of click together and click into place. There's some toys when you're a parent, you'll know this. There's some toys that you try to encourage your kids to play with so you can play with them too. And this is one of those toys. I, I used to love, especially when my kids were smaller, I used to love like gathering around with them and seeing what we could build together. And we would build these big like castles and things like that together. Uh, we would build houses and, and, and I always kept trying to do like bigger and bigger things to make it extra cool. And so we would put all these things together. So I'm looking for the cool triangles. You gotta have the triangles to make this work. I didn't bring this up here to not impress you, okay? I'm going to impress you. Okay? Uh, so, we would get together and we'd put these things together. I figured out this sweet technique where you can bend in and make kind of a concave roof there. So, so we build these together, and I loved doing this. So, I'm serious. I'm not doing this until it's all done, okay? So, we would, we would build these together. My, my kids would love it, but the one that loved it the most was my youngest, Hadley. And she's the one who's played with it the longest because she's, you know, the youngest. And so she's nine now, and she's always loved these things. And, and she would sit there and build stuff with them and sometimes build and sometimes just do, like, designs in the middle of the uh, floor and stuff like that. But there's this problem we noticed with Hadley. And that was that uh, after she built something, uh, she demanded that that thing stay right where it is for eternity. <laughs> And Hadley always get mad, got mad anytime someone would come and like start to tear it down and put stuff back in the box and do those kinds of things where if her brother's sister came and wanted to play with it and do things like that, she always got really mad about those things and would always get super frustrated and upset. And we tried to explain to her over and over again, Hadley, listen, I know you, I know you love what you made and it's beautiful, sweetheart. It's so good. But you got to understand this is a toy. And you got to understand that everything you built, as cool as it is, it's, it's just temporary. It's just, it's made to be built and then put back away. It's not meant to stay up there permanently. That's just not how these things go. It's all going to go back in the box eventually. you got to know that. And can I tell you that I think that this is true of a lot of people in their lives? That a lot of people will spend their whole lives gathering the pieces up and trying to build something incredible, trying to build their life up in just the way they want it. And they will run after many things to give themselves the lives they want, whether that thing is uh, money or whether that thing is like titles and achievements, all of these things. And so they'll work 
really hard building this life, and then they protect it with their life. They protect every part of it because I'm working on something here. I've got a vision here. I've got a project that I am trying to put together, and this is my agenda. This is the direction that I wanted to go. And then for all of us, there will come this moment when Jesus will step onto the scene and go, that's cool, but I've got something better for you. I want to build something with materials that don't fall down. I want to build something for you with materials that last forever. I've got something bigger and better for you, but you're going to have to hand this project over to me. You're going to have to hand what you've been working on and what you envisioned over to me and make me the new building project manager in your life. And there are a whole lot of people who just can't do it. Because what if... What if I hand this thing to Jesus and he, and he changes things? Like I, I had a plant here that I was working on. I had a direction that I was going. What if I build it to Jesus and he starts taking pieces away that I want and that I liked and I had them there for a reason and then he asks me to hand those over and get rid of those things. I don't know if I can do that. And this is a big question for you is, are you going to hold on to the thing that you have built or are you willing to slide this over to Jesus and put him in charge of your life to take what he has for you? But can I tell you before you make that decision that you need to know that it will be a day and I don't know if it's coming in five years for you and I don't know if it's coming in 20 years or 30 years or 60 years, but there will be a day when everything that you have gathered up, the life that you have spent your whole existence trying to create for yourself, the titles that you've gained and the money that you've saved in the bank and the houses that you've built and the achievements that you've stacked up, every last bit of it goes back into the box. It's all going back there one day. And so you could spend your life fighting for and trying to protect this thing, but eventually it's all going back in the box. So the question Jesus presents to his people is, will you be the kind of person who holds on to your life until one day it gets pulled away from you? Or will you give it up and come to something that I built for you, a house that lasts forever, a house that you can live in, a house that was made for you, the kind of life that I have created for you. Will you be willing to do those things? Jim Elliott was a young man who, at your age and stage of life, became convicted of this truth, that there are people who need to hear about Jesus, and my life is worth giving towards that. And so he was willing to deny himself, and, and he goes down to South America, and in the process of trying to bring the gospel to these people, he ends up being murdered by those very people as he tries to come to them. But I'm telling you something, we all know this, that Jim Elliott did not regret it, because just a few years before he was killed, he wrote these famous words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's no fool for the person who is willing to hand their life over to Jesus because they can't keep it anyway to get something from Jesus that they will never be able to lose. Life with him, I hope that you will see that tonight. I hope that you will make the decision, not just today, but day after day, because let's be honest, it, it takes a daily decision oftentimes to place your life in the hands of the one who deserves it. To place your life in the one, or in the hands of the one who gave his life for you, in the hands of the one king who is worth trusting it all. It is worth it. Let me pray for us and we'll be done.
Father, you know my heart. And I cannot uh, stand up in front of my friends and pretend that I do this perfectly. Uh, It is so natural in me, Lord, to want to stay comfortable and to want to do the things that I want to do and to live for myself. And uh, I know that that's got to be true for my friends in this room, whether they are whether they are brothers and sisters who actually know you, Jesus, or whether they are friends who do not yet know you and are trying to figure out whether it's worth it or not, Lord, I pray this, this mercy for us tonight, that you would reveal Jesus in all his beauty and all his glory and help us to see how true it is that he died for us and raised to life to give us a new life so that we could give that life right back to him. Lord, give us the ability to see that that is worth it, even when it feels hard even when it's not easy, even when it's scary and it costs us. God, give us the ability and the desire to do that. Change our lives as we deny ourselves to follow our King. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.